0: is going to come and he's going to read uh, chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, and let's stand together as we read that, 1 Samuel chapter 5.
1: When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was very heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But, they, uh, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Then they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the city uh, and the cry of the city went up to heaven.
0: Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, allow us right now to humble ourselves before you Allow you to minister to us, to direct us, Lord, to convict us, and to challenge us with your words, so that we can be the kind of people you've called us to be. But Lord, may we also see um, your your Majesty, Lord, your your holiness and, and your power as we walk through this particular passage together. Lord, we we need you desperately, and we need to understand, Lord, what pleases you and what doesn't please you, and how to conform to your will, and Lord, how to avoid making the mistakes that Israel made and even the Philistines made, and so Lord, help us to grasp those realities so that we can apply the truths to our lives and to do it in such a way that would bring you glory. We ask, Lord, this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, As many of you know, I grew up not just in the United States. I grew up for eight years in England from the age of about eight to 16 And yet, I was uh, heavily influenced by the United States of America, which I think is true uh, for many people around the world because they're influenced by what they see on TV. And I remember growing up, um, every Sunday night was the Waltons, um, and uh, our family would all kind of gather around and watch that, and of course, at night, we would parody um, that goodnight scene from our bedrooms, right, you know? Good night, Jeff. Good night, Rod. Good night, Mom. Good night, Shirley. You know, all that stuff. And if, if you're kind of at a certain age where you have no idea what I'm talking about, we understand, but there's a few of us that do. Um, the Waltons um, had an impact on our culture and our life there. And then, of course, I remember on, on Saturdays, uh, we would look forward to watching Happy Days. And I always enjoyed learning more ways that I could be cool Hey, right? I mean, probably the most profound thing I learned from Arthur Fonzarelli um, was that you can't say that you are wrong, right? He could never say, I'm wrong. Um, But he would always stand in front of a mirror and never have to change anything. I never quite got to that point, but um, it was a lot of fun. I also remember um, key phrases from that American culture through media that came through. Um, Things like, Bookim Dano, right? Which you know comes from what? See, this is the audience participation portion of our time this morning. Um, Another one would be, who loves you, baby? Telly Savalas on Kojak, right? And, you know, the little lollipops that he would have all the time, right? Yeah, some of you, it's coming back, right? It's just slowly, wow, that was back there. Wow, it was in there. Good. But I also remember watching the Saturday morning Batman show, That taught me how to play fight with my friends using Biff and Bam and Kapow and Kerplunk. But there's one phrase that the Batman show is very famous for. And it's this. Meanwhile, back in Gotham City. It's probably one of the only shows you ever have where they have this, Meanwhile, back in Gotham City. Now you might be thinking to yourself, all right? where is Pastor Rod going with all this? How what does this have to do with our passage? Let me tell you what. It has a lot to do with what's going on here because what we we have here with this meanwhile back in Gotham City is a transitional statement telling us that Batman was in one place, you know, fighting the penguin or the joker or something like that, but meanwhile back in Gotham City, his co-laborer, so to speak, Robin is somewhere tied up and there's some machine ready to destroy him. And something's gonna happen, of course, about that time the show ends. you have to come back next week to find out whether or not you know Batman saves Robin or not. Well, when we come to our passage here today, we have this transition that's taking place. As we jump into chapter five, there's really a meanwhile back in the land of Philistia. This is what's going on. The chronology of what's taking place here actually goes back to 1 Samuel chapter four. So go back a little bit if you would, and let's just remind ourselves of what happened. If you remember in chapter four, the Philistines come out to meet the Israelites, and the Philistines defeat the Israelites, and 4,000 soldiers um, are lost in that encounter. The Israelites, recognizing that it wasn't the Philistines that was actually the reason for their defeat, it was God, said, you know what, we need to do something. And what they did is they said, let's take the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle. Let's bring it here. Let's let's go into battle with the Ark of the Covenant and God will save us because we have his Ark, his presence with us. So they went into battle to fight the Philistines and the Philistines routed them. 30,000 men were killed that day. Okay? And Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, Died, which was prophesied, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. All right. Then, from verse twelve on, we find out what happens in Israel after the Ark is captured. We have a little vignette there about Eli and his listening to yes to the death of his son, but primarily the Ark being captured, and it's when he hears that that he falls over dead. And then we have Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, who dies giving birth to her son, but as she still has her last breath, she calls her son Ichabod. The glory has departed. The glory is gone. That's what happened in Israel. If we go back to verse 12 then, the chronology of what's happening in chapter five begins at this same point. We have the story of what happens in Israel. Now we have the story of what happens in the Philistine camp. You with me so far? So there's two different stories. So there's like parallel things that are going on. So there's this, you know, meanwhile, back in the Philistine camp. This is what's taking place. Now, in the lesson we learn in chapter 4, let's just do some quick review here. Here's what we learned. This Archaeology 101, okay? You cannot presume upon God and treat him like a talisman or a rabbit's foot. Right? Simply taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle isn't going to guarantee you success in that battle because the Ark represents God. But if you take the Ark in a presumptive way, God doesn't go with that Ark. And that's what happened. Or you could put it another way, the glory of God is not present with us when we seek to manipulate him or do his will. So, for example, you might be going into a difficult situation, and you say, well, I've got my Bible with me. My Bible is going to protect me. Bible go in front of me, all right? As if God somehow inhabits the Bible, and this is where we've got to be careful, because does does the word of God reveal God's truth? Yes. But is there some kind of a presence of God in the physical pages of the Bible? See what I'm saying? There's a distinction there. The answer is no. He's not actually in the physical pages and the leather that I have. But this is the very word of God breathed out, recorded for us. But we can so easily transition from worshiping God to worshiping the objects. And that can also be true about a cross, right? I wear a cross around my neck. And so I go around life and thinking that the cross is somehow going to protect me. The cross isn't gonna protect you, it's just a symbol that reminds you of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. It's a good symbol. But you can drift away from the real focus of what's important to following the symbol. And so much of what is under the umbrella of Christianity has jumped into the category of treating the things of God like they're rabbit's feet. So that's archaeology 101. Now, Archaeology 102, which is what we're looking at today, here ultimately is the theme that we're going we're gonna to see flowing out of this passage, all right? It's this. You cannot defy God and expect to get away with it. You cannot defy God and expect to get away with it. There may be a season of freedom, but be sure, God will judge There'll be a reckoning. Now, as we turn to chapter five, I just want to highlight some things and just want you to notice um, how the ark of God is being used or even the expressions along with the ark of God are being used. The chapter begins with a proud and glowing Philistine people but it ends with them panicking and crying out to God. They think they have captured God but in reality, the God of Israel has captured them. Notice the ark language as it develops in this text. Verse 1 captured the ark. They captured it. Verse 2 they took the ark of God. Verse 2 they brought the ark of God. Verse 2 they set it up beside Dagon. Verse 7 the ark, it must not remain with us. That's the people of Ashdod saying that. Verse 8 They brought the ark of God of Israel to Gath. Verse 10, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Verse 11, send away the ark of God of Israel. All right? It moves from captured to send it away. I mean, there's something really profound that God is wanting us to see here, these victorious people celebrating the capture of the ark end up just wanting to rid themselves of it as fast as they can. And that's kind of a summary picture of what's taking place here. Now, I'm sure that the narrator of this story, who is writing this account, I'm sorry, you should have that up there. He's writing this account for the benefit of the people of Israel, is smiling at every stroke of his pen, In fact, you can can sense the laughter as you read the story. It's a pretty ridiculous story on one level, isn't it? I mean, God's falling down on their face. Tumors, people panicking and going crazy in the streets. But it's also amazingly powerful on another level. The power of God is on display in the Philistine camp. Now, I also want you to notice another repeated phrase in this chapter, and it's the phrase, the hand of God or the hand of the Lord. And it's repeated four times. And in particular, I want us to notice verse seven, because verse seven is going to really kind of give us the structure of how we're going to approach this passage. Because there's a summary statement there that looks back and then looks actually at the present and moving forward. Look at verse seven. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And what happens in verses one through five is the hand of the Lord or the hand of God against Dagon. And then we have in the rest of the chapter the hand of of the Lord against the cities. All right, and I have a third point, which is more a point of application as we're gonna press this home a little bit, but the structure then is the hand of the Lord against against um, Dagon, in particular, in his temple, and then the hand of the Lord against the cities. So the hand of the Lord in the temple. Verse one, when, The Philistines captured the Ark of God. They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now all this action that's taking place comes from the Philistine people who are setting the Ark of the Covenant in the house or in the temple of Dagon. The Ark here simply is just a passive object in all of this activity. I mean, they're moving it. They're setting it up. They're bringing it. But ultimately, they're bringing it to the temple of Dagon. You can, again, just hear the gloating in their activities. The gospel, according to the Philistines, would say this. Yahweh, Israel's God, represented by the ark, is the defeated God. And Dagon, um, he is there And the ark of God is being set before him. The victorious God stands over the defeated God. This would be their goal. This would be their gospel. This is how they would view the power of Dagon. And although the text doesn't necessarily give us all this data, it's reasonable to think that there was much celebration for the two victories in battle and for the capture of Israel's ark. I mean, they're thinking, wow, what a day. What a victory. I mean, Israel seemed to rally, and we kind of roused ourselves to be men and fight, and we went out there and we defeated them, and we defeated them far greater than we did in the first battle. Dagon must be powerful. But what they're going to learn is that they think they've captured Israel's God, but in reality, he has captured them. You're going to hear that a number of times this morning. So we jump into scene number one, verse three. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Now what a, what a master stroke of God's power on display. I mean, you know, we, we read the story, we say, okay, that's, that's really, that's kind of funny, and all that kind. but just, just think about it, this is, a, this is a nation, this is a people who have been battling with Israel for so long, and now they have the Ark of the Covenant in their presence, and then they go to sleep that night, and they come back the next morning, and rather than the ark bowing to Dagon, their God, we find Dagon flat on his face bowing to the ark, bowing before the God of Israel. Now notice in both of these scenes, the narrator moves from the expression, the ark of God, to the ark of the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh is on display in the house of Dagon. It is Yahweh that is getting the attention here. It is Yahweh that is getting the recognition here. Then humor of all humors, the people had to somehow pick up their powerful and victorious God and put him back in his place. Oh, our God just fell down. Hey, would you come over? We need to help our God back up. I mean, you can just see the the silliness in all of this, right? So they're putting up Dagon, their God. Okay, now he's back up. Boy, that was a close one. No, it wasn't close at all. But God is forcing you to see the foolishness of your empty idolatry. Dagon has no power. He's just a piece of stone. That is how Isaiah describes the idols of man. Isaiah 46, 7 they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. The big distinction between the Ark of the Covenant of God and the Statue of Dagon is the Statue of Dagon was an idol. They actually worshiped the idol. The Ark was simply a representation, a reminder. Uh, uh, an earthly representation of the presence and the power of God. They weren't to worship the ark, they were to respect it, but they were to worship the God behind the ark. And that's what we see is on display here. That's scene one. Now notice scene two. All right, we've got Dagon back up. That was a close one, good. Now look at verse four. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Something similar happened, right? And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So once again, the narrator talks about the ark of the Lord. And before the ark was found, uh, what was left of Dagon, he's headless. He's handless. All he is, is a trunk. Now, it's had such a shocking impact on the Philistine people that the narrator insists on inserting a contemporary truth about this very event. Look at verse five, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. You know, you're wondering why you're not reading, and that's why there is no longer a house of Dagon. But instead, you have the house of Dagon still in existence, but the priests, they will not step in the threshold. Why? Because they remember what the God of Israel did to their idol god, Dagon. So this is kind of like a contemporary reality. Hey, to this day... This is what what happens in the temple. The priests have so much respect and so much remembrance for the God of Israel that they will not step in that area. At the end of chapter 4, we read about Phinehas' wife naming her son Ichabod and ultimately asking, where is the glory? But the word... Ichabod comes from a word called kabod, which means glory. It also means heavy. And so there, there's actually going to be a, a play on words. There's going to be, a, I want to say, a symbolic thing that God is doing here in this story to help us understand how awesome and how powerful he is. So the word kabod means glory or heavy. Just think of it you know, for, for those of you that grew up in the 70s, you know what I'm talking about here because back then they would say, wow, man, that's heavy. And what that means is that's cool or that's, that's really amazing. So the idea of heaviness here and glory are, are kind of, in a sense, can be used in a similar way. And here's what's happening. Remember, she says, the glory of God has departed But now in chapter 5, we see in this play on words that the glory of God is now heavy, and it's powerfully heavy in the temple of Dagon. The glory of God has departed, but it's showing up in the cities of the Philistines. And he is on display. So you have Israel over here. Where's God? And the Philistines saying... (laughs) Get away, God. I mean, you got this this humorous picture, but a powerful picture that even when God has departed Israel, God is not powerless. He is still at work. Now, that's the hand of God in the temple. I'm sorry, I haven't been clicking these things here. The hand of the Lord now in the cities because it moves out of the temple into the cities because this, this temple was in the, the city of Ashdod. So not only was God's hand heavy against Dagon in a dramatic way, he was also busy terrorizing and afflicting the people of the city. The Philistines had soundly defeated the army of Israel, but they still had to deal with the God of Israel who had struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague. If you remember in chapter four and verse eight, the Philistines remembered the God of Israel and how powerful he was in getting them out of Egypt. So they defeated Israel, but they still had to deal with the God of Israel. So now we have a terrified Ashdod. Verse six, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So if you lived around in that region, in the city or around the area, you were struggling with the affliction from God that came out in tumors now there's some debate as to what these tumors are all right tumors basically are lumps on the body you might say Um, some scholars actually think that these tumors were hemorrhoids now I don't want to have to explain to you what that is all right but you probably understand what that is and that would certainly have an effect on a people group there's a, another um, actual thought, and it actually comes from chapter 6, and I want you to notice chapter 6 and verse 5. And this is still kind of part of the greater story of the ark here. It says, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. There's some that actually believe that what's happening here is that God released, I want to say the equivalent of the bubonic plague, or as we would say today, What? Ebola. Now, you can understand in our context how people would be panicked if this was ravaging a city and a region. We've only heard about things at a distance. But if that is happening around you, you're wanting to do everything you can to get rid of it. All right? So there's this panic. There is this terror that is going on. And so the men of Ashdod made a right connection. Look at verse seven. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. They are at least recognizing that it is because of the ark of God that these things are happening. Let me draw your attention back to chapter four. And if you would notice verse Two. the Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle and when the troops came to the camp the elders of Israel said why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines now both the Israelites recognize why they were defeated the Philistines now make the connection as to why these things are happening in their camp. So they're both at least coming to the right conclusion. The question now is, what will they do with the conclusion that they've come to that is right? So this is crisis time. And so what they do is they call for a senate session where the five lords, the lords of each of the cities, will gather to discuss what to do. They need a quick plan. They need it to happen now because people are struggling physically. There is this crisis going on in, in Philistia. So now we look at verse eight. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the, Lord, of the God of Israel? At least the lords of the Philistines recognized the source of their distress, but they have a problem. They were victorious in battle, against their arch enemies Israel. They had in their possession the bigger prize that would be the Ark of God, and they knew that it was causing their troubles. But they couldn't just take it back to Israel because to take it back to Israel would be what? To acknowledge defeat would be humiliating. So we've got to somehow keep it in our possession. We don't want to give it back. I mean, we are victorious after all. I mean, we won those battles after all. So, this is what they answer. Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Now, scripture can sometimes be humorous. And I find this to be very humorous. Who gathered to discuss this? The five lords of the five cities. I'm just trying to imagine the lord of Gath sitting there as the other four said, well, we think it should go to Gath. Was he just like the the weak link in all of this? He was outnumbered four to one. And what we find here is that the Ark of the Covenant goes now to Gath. So now we find Gath in great panic. So they brought the Ark of God of Israel. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. This this expression of very great panic is a word that is used in other passages of scripture, in particular, to talk about the terror that God brought on the enemies of Israel in war. The idea is that they were leading, um, or God was leading this enemy into a, a state of confusion and panic that would take place in the time of war when when God is routing them. So they're just running around wild like, no, 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 we're just trying to save ourselves because we're getting overrun. That's the kind of panic we're talking about here. The point is that the people understood themselves to be under attack from the God of Israel and if you remember, these are the men who in chapter 4 heard the noise of the camp of Israel and called on one another to be men and what? Fight. And now they're running around in a panic, aimlessly trying to get away from the suffering tumors. So they sent the ark to Ekron. There's no meeting of the lords this time. It's just, get it out of here. And the nearest city is Ekron, so now this this ark is heading toward that city. Can you just sense the smirk and the giggling that is taking place as the narrator, narrator is just writing this out? He's thinking, you foolish Philistines to think that you could defy Yahweh, the God of Israel, and get away with it. Have you not learned anything yet? And then there's crying out in Ekron. So now it comes to Ekron. And notice what happens here. There's no rest for the people. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. And when the people of Ekron hear that the ark is coming to their city, they're not thinking about having a celebration or a victory feast. No, they are not happy. They've heard about what happened in, um, in Ashdod. They've heard about what happened in Gath. They do not want this ark in their midst. So they call for a meeting. And they call for a meeting with the lords of the Philistines. Now just think through this now. When the ark was in Ashdod, the people went to the lords of the Philistines for advice. Well, what do you think we should do? And they took in all the data and they said, you know what? Gath, that's where it needs to go. Okay, now things have changed. They're not coming to the lords of the Philistines and saying, hey, what do you think we should do? The people are coming to the lords of the Philistines saying, listen, we're telling you what to do. There's a huge change going on here in the political structure in Philistia here because the people now recognize the difficulty and they recognize the weakness of their leadership in not handling this properly. So they're saying, we're giving you instructions, verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. So what had begun with a be men and fight has now turned into send it away. Just like they had to put Dagon back in his place. Now they're convinced that the God of Israel, the ark in their thinking, must be returned to his proper place. And then the narrator speaks. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So the glory of God had left Israel, but was now in Ekron as the hand of God. And the result of this, the cry of the city went up to heaven, just like the cry of the Israelites in Egypt when they were under slavery went up to heaven. In fact, John Woodhouse makes the following observation. The Philistines who had defied God, fearing that they would become slaves of the Hebrews, found themselves crying out to heaven just like the Hebrews when they were slaves of the Egyptians. Now friends, this is a An incredible story, it's a little confusing maybe, but it's a powerful display of how a nation who thinks they have captured the God of Israel ends up running, panicked, scrambling, trying to get rid of his power on display in their midst. And it's a power of judgment exercised against them. They know that he is the source but they do not want to give him up until he judges them and continues to judge them. Then the people say, get rid of it, get rid of it. Now we looked at the hand of the Lord in the temple. We've looked at the hand of the the Lord in the cities, but I want to begin now to kind of squeeze this a little bit for our own benefit and talk about the hand of the Lord in the world. Because all around us and throughout the history of this world, people have sought to defy God. And remember what we talked about earlier, don't think that you can defy God and get away with it, yet man still chooses to defy him. And I just have a a number of illustrations here to help us think through that reality. First of all, I want to talk about what I'm calling an individual's poem, an individual's poem. It's called Invicta, and it's by William E. Henley. And in this poem, he seeks to defy God in in his well-known poem, which is a message of self-mastery and self-reliance. This is what it says. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the full clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, you hear what he's saying there, right? How straight the gate, the scroll, referring to the Word of God, he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now I thought it was interesting, as I studied up a little bit on this, that in this poem, Henley is pushing God away and replacing him with self-reliance. Who needs God when you can be the master of your fate? Who needs God when you can can be the, the captain of your soul? But it's also said that when Nelson Mandela was incarcerated on Robben Island for leading terrorism in South Africa, that he recited this poem to other prisoners and was empowered by its message of self-mastery. And last December, when our president attended his memorial, in his honor, he quoted the last stanza. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I would like to think that people often say things they have no idea what they're talking about. But there is a shaking of a fist at God saying, I am the master of my fate. I'm gonna do it my way. Thank you, Bing Crosby. Frank Sinatra. Well, Bing probably heard it too, right? And then there was also Elvis, right? There's this attitude, you know what, I'm going to do it how I want to do it. All right, I might bring some religion in there, but I'm still going to do what I want to do because I'm the master of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. I'm the captain of my life. And friends, that is defying God. That is saying, God... I recognize you may be there, but I do not want you to rule. But God is sitting on his throne. And he rules whether you say it or not. And whether you like it or not. Don't think that you can defy God and get away with it. That's the individual's poem. Now a city's challenge A city's challenge. There's a city in Sicily called Messina. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it properly. But on December 25th in 1908, a newspaper published in Messina printed a parody against God daring him to make himself known by sending an earthquake. Three days later, on December 28th, The city and its surrounding district was devastated by a terrible quake that killed 84,000 people. Probably the worst recorded earthquake in Europe. As they go back and try and measure things, I don't know if they had the technology back then, but they estimate it was between 6.7 and 7.2 on the Richter scale. They say it lasted 42 seconds. That's like a ride at some park somewhere, isn't it? You know, The ride, the earthquake, you know. 42 seconds of shaking and stuff. Can you imagine? But there was this defiance of God. Yeah, if you're there, shake us a little bit. Okay, I'll give you three days just to kind of laugh, drink it up, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> Now, friends, there's a defiance that people have that that will do things like this. And sometimes God will just, in his wisdom, in his kindness, you say, How can it be kind to kill so many people? That's all part of God's providence and his sovereignty. But in his purposes and his judgment, he will do. Things like this to draw people's attention to the fact that he sits on the throne. He is the creator God. He is not to be defied. Now as we turn into the word of God, I would like for us to look at 2 Peter chapter 3. In that passage we find Peter talking about someone coming to scoff, someone coming to mock. This is one passage. There are a number of passages we can go to that talk about scoffers and mockers, but this is one that I thought would be helpful for us today. So 2 Peter, chapter three, beginning at verse one. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets I thought he was coming again. (laughs) Why do you worship a God who makes promises but doesn't actually do what he says he's going to do? What kind of people you think you are? For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. They may mock, they may scorn, they may seek to ridicule you and your faith, but unless they repent of their sin, they are destined for destruction. They're destined for judgment. Don't think that you can defy God and get away with it. Probably one of the greatest acts of defiance we find recorded in the Gospels and in particular, in Mark chapter 15. Is there any more central story of man's defiance than that of Jesus' death on the cross? Jesus has been arrested by the chief priests and scribes, been found guilty, handed over to the Roman authorities. He is found without fault, but sent to the cross. Pilate, who was washing his hands of the blood of Jesus, by the, by the multitude of Jews who are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And now Mark continues his account of Jesus in the hands of the Romans at verse 16. Mark chapter um, 15 and verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in purple cloak Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. That's kind of a a light word for what they mean by put. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! Of course, all of this is a mockery of who he is. All this is scorning him for claiming to have that title. And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They are defying the very son of God who is just a few hours later going to die for the sin of mankind. But we continue reading verse 21. And they compelled the passer by Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Then they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and delivered his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should be, uh, which, what he should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him, again yeah, charge against him, read, "The King of the Jews." And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by, derided him, wagging their heads and saying. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Is that a statement of defiance? So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he's saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, <laughs> All right? right, you've got to add some ha-ha-has in there, right? Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So that the history of the world comes to a focal point at the cross of Jesus Christ where the religious systems of the world at that point in time looked at Jesus and scoffed and mocked. And the pagans who were there, might even say even the the Roman soldiers, just made ridicule of him. All of this defiance going on. But how does Jesus respond? How does he react to all of this? What does he say in a prayer before God? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now that is not a blanket forgiveness that everyone's now, everyone's part of the body of Christ. Oh, that's great. No, what he's saying here is there's still something yet to be done that is the means of salvation for all of these people even if they have defied me and defied me in this way, even if they've spit in my face, even if they pressed a thorn or crown of thorns on my head, even if they've wagged their heads while I've been hanging on that cross, there is still hope for those people because of what I have come to do. When they didn't understand, what they didn't understand is that though, though they had Jesus on the cross, Jesus actually had them. God was not out of control here. He had matters very much under control. There on this mount, there in this city. Friends, this is the truth of the matter about those who choose to defy God. There will be a season when they can gloat that gives them the false security that they can defy God and get away with it. It appears that defying God is feasible after all. I can use God's name in vain. Nope. Not struck down yet, Woohoo! I can do it again. No, still not struck down. I can commit all sorts of immorality. I can shake my fist at God and be totally irreverent. And God in his patience is stepping back, letting us in a sense dig our own holes, make things worse for ourselves, There's no lightning rod. There's no earthquake swallowing us up. There's no sea that we're drowning in. It is a false sense of security because you cannot defy God and get away with it. The season may be long or it may be short, but it will not last forever. Judgment is coming. There will be a reckoning, and that person will have to stand before God and give account yet. Behind all of that is a gift that God has for those who are willing to learn by virtue of his judgment. And I just want you to think through this with me. What is it that the Israelites should have been thinking when they went into battle and they lost 4,000 men? It shouldn't be, oh, let's get the ark and go into battle again. They knew that it was God that caused the defeat. It should have been an opportunity to cry out to God in repentance and to restore their relationship with him. But no, instead, they thought together and they said, aha, let's use God in our own way to accomplish what we want. And then the Philistines, they had the opportunity on a couple of occasions there, gathered together. What are we gonna do? Look at all this turmoil, look at what the God of Israel is doing to us, what he did to Dagon, what he's doing now to us, all these tumors that are are afflicting the people. How about cry out to God? Not just for deliverance, but in repentance. See, behind all of this, behind the statement Don't think you can defy God and get away with it. It's always the promise that with judgment and in judgment, God is promising that if you are repentant, that there will be forgiveness. But there comes a point in time where judgment is the end, where judgment is the only solution. But even Israel and the Philistines and even us are people whom God is pursuing by virtue of his judgment on us. So I want to close now and bring things to a close with these last four concluding thoughts. And we, need to, we need to ponder this. These are not going to be quick things. We're just going to rattle off. We're going to ponder these a little bit. And we need to make sure we understand what these mean. Number one, God is not an idol. Do you believe that? Do we understand that having a cross S- situated, right centrally in our church auditorium, will not make us any more spiritual. <clears throat> that power is not found in the you might want to say, the articles or the objects that are part of the means of our worship. Having a bigger Bible does not make you a more mature believer. God is not an idol to be worshiped, but He is. A living God. The Philistines thought of their gods as objects, objects to worship, to gain an edge in the problems of life, but they were still objects. And Israel had fallen into this kind of thinking when they put their confidence in the ark while forgetting about God Himself. But God is not a thing to be manipulated or to be controlled by men. Martin Lloyd Jones says this When you think you have Him defeated, then he is active. When you think you have him captive, he knocks down your God. He is God who cannot be restrained, illimitable, in other words, he cannot be limited, absolute, eternal, the living God. He's not an idol. And be careful that, that in your walk with God and in those times of longing, in those times of struggle and trying to sort through what has happening in your life, that you don't allow yourself to drift to that popular place of becoming religious in your thinking, idolatrous in your thinking, in a way that would abandon the very person of God. So it's helpful sometimes to have a Bible, obviously. It's helpful to have some images that remind us of who God is and what he has done but simply having those images in our presence simply having them you know in our homes or, or 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 on our desk or something like that does not somehow magically and spiritually and mystically change things we got to be careful we don't put our trust in them our trust should be in God and God alone because he is a living god secondly not an idol, but a living God. Our God is not one of many, but the only God. Can I say this very, very clearly? There is no God of Islam. There is no God of Mormonism. There is no God of Catholicism. There is no God of, and you can go down the list, there is only one true God. That is what screams from the pages of scripture. Our God is one God. There is no God like our God. Do we believe that? Now here's the thing. Are we fearful of, in quotes, little g, the God of Islam? Or are we confident that the one true God is seated on his throne, totally aware, totally in control, accomplishing his purposes even through the suffering that may come from wicked people who worship a non-God? And we might be the recipients of that. Where's our confidence? Exodus 20, 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. God is not willing to be placed on our bookshelves alongside other gods. He demands exclusive sovereignty in our lives. He will not share the limelight with idols, but will cast them down and smite those who serve them Isaiah six nine says this, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Friends, we need to build ourselves up in that. Because the world tends to whittle away at us. And we begin to wonder what's happening. What's happening? All this change that is taking place and all these things that are, seem to be whittling away at what we consider to be Christianity. Or maybe it's, whittling away at what we consider to be American rather than God. It's a big difference. Number three, our God is not sometimes powerful, but the almighty and all-powerful one. Why is this important? Because in, in the days of our text, the regions actually believed that each country, each people group, had their own gods, and the reason why they won one victory is because on that day, their God was victorious, their God was powerful, but on another day, another God is powerful. See, God doesn't play those games. Why? Because the God of Israel, our God, is going up against a stone, right? When he's going up against Dagon, he's not going up against a smaller, lesser God. He's going up against a piece of stone. It's not a God at all. It's an idol. But our God is mighty. He is all powerful. He's the one that spoke the world into existence. Okay, Dagon, do your thing. can't, why? Because he's a piece of stone. That's so offensive, Pastor Rod. How would you say that about all these people groups out there? They're worshiping these non-gods, just idols. Absolutely, that's what the word of God says. But do we believe it? And then do we believe that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is the powerful God, the only powerful God, The all-powerful God. And if he is that all-powerful God, he is the all-powerful God for you and for me. The question is, we need to have a right understanding and appreciation and interaction with him relating to his power. See, God is not a genie. We just go up and say, I need your power. Rub, 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 rub. I want you to do what, you want, what I want you to do. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. But God, with his power, will accomplish all he desires to do. And no one will stand in his way. And everyone that defies him, he will deal with. In his time, in his way, but he will deal with you. Number four, our God is not a hateful ogre but a gracious and saving God willing to hear the cry of repentance from Israel, from the Philistines, and from all mankind. Have you considered that maybe the heavy hand of God that you have been experiencing may be the result of your ongoing sinfulness? But that heavy hand of God is there to push you, and to squeeze you to a place of repentance and restoration. One of the, I would say, best examples of that would be the, the whole teaching on uh, what a church does with sin in their midst. 1 Corinthians 13 and Matthew chapter 18, First Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 5, I should say, where there was someone in the, the church, they were boasting about the fact that this person was committing immorality, committing incest, and Paul's instructions were put him out of the church. And then we have some qualifiers in Matthew 18 where we're given some instructions about how you go about confronting someone. Go personally, and you do it lovingly, but you take two or three with you, and the goal there is restoration. But if they will not listen to you, what we're told is that you, and here's the expression, you deliver them unto Satan. And it's like, "Oh, man, what does that mean?" Does that mean you build a fire and you, know, you kind of throw them on the fire? Is that what it's talking about? No, 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 no. What it means is we have to understand that the church are places of refuge in this world. Why? Because the prince of the power of the air has freedom to roam and God has created the church as this wonderful community, a place of safety, a place of protection, a place of nurturing. And so we come and we nestle ourselves in the congregation of, of, of God, called his church, the local expressions of that But when we're told here to put that person, or deliver that person to Satan, it means to put them out of the church so that now they are in the arena where they are totally unprotected by all the blessings that come in the church, and they are gonna be receiving all this stuff directly, might wanna say, from Satan. All of these things are gonna be bashing around them, and the whole purpose of that is to drive them back to the church and to the place of repentance and to be restored. See, God demonstrates these stories for us to slap us a little bit and say, listen, I'm God. I care about you. I know you. I love you. And I'm working a plan. Please don't defy me. Please listen to me. Please hear what I have to say. And when he demonstrates, or when we come to him and we say, God, you are right, I have been wandering. You're right, I have been living in sin. And I come to you in repentance. He he restores that relationship. You can't defy God and think that you can get away with it. But if you have defied God, you won't get away with it but the judgment and the suffering that you deserve because of that, if you are repentant, is transferred from you and placed on his son, Jesus Christ. You're not getting away with it. It's still being paid for. But it's being paid for by the son of God himself. Lord, help us today to contemplate these realities. Lord, it's easy for us to look out and to see people shaking their fist at God in so many different ways, Lord, whether it be things like the promotion of gay marriage or the abortion of children or murder or um, sexual abuse in all its forms and, there's so many things that people do deliberately and purposefully knowing that it's wrong, knowing that it offends you, but just wanting to stiff-arm you with any counsel, guidance, accountability. And yet, Lord, those things may still be true in our hearts. Although maybe not as in the same ways with the same things, but maybe, Lord, you simply want us to Love our spouses in a way that would honor you. And we're tempted to defy you by saying, no, I'm the center of this world. I'm not going to do that. Or maybe there's a young person here that knows that they need to honor you and they say, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm almost 18 now and I can do what I want to do. Or, or maybe there are people that are struggling with their place in life and you know that your environment, you know that, or they know that their, their, their context is not healthy. They know that, that in, in their workplace or maybe their social life, Lord, that they're placing themselves in, in context, Lord, that, that, that draw them to do things that would be offensive to you but they don't listen because they want to do what they want to do. Lord, I ask that your kindness and your, your Holy Spirit, Lord, and, and, and the, the, the graciousness, Lord, that you've given us this morning would draw people who are experiencing those kinds of things to the place. where they would say, God, forgive me for thinking that I can defy you and get away with it. Lord, I repent of that sin and I give my life to you afresh. Lord, may we be people who are willing to pray that prayer. To ask forgiveness. To be restored to you. And Lord, to to revel in the grace that we receive. We ask this in your name. Amen.